Welcome to another Bite Side. I am Seamus Byrne. We are talking about tech and culture and digital things and really just talking about all sorts of random things that we find interesting. And when I say we, I mean myself and Nick Healy. Nick, how are you? I'm well, I'm well. You, you forgot to mention we're basically almost, uh, you know, after pivoting several weeks ago to a Queeby show and then forgetting that we'd done that, we've almost pivoted to an Elon Musk exclusive show. <laughs> yes, the uh, Muskometer and, uh, you know, just how it's definitely hit the red zone this week, oh. uh, Nick. I think, um, I mean... Right, there's so much in this world where you think, how much crazier can it get? And then he literally tweets, take the red pill. Take the red pill with a rose, a rose emoji. Now, that's the bit that's confused the hell out of me because in some circles that's a very left-wing emoji. And other, you know, if you're English, you might assume that he's uh, aligning himself with a particular UK political party. So he's tweeted, take the red pill. It's not just that. He's then had Ivanka Trump respond directly, quote tweet him and say, taken, and then following all of that up, Lily Wachowski's come in and told the both of them to F off. How good was that? (laughs) I mean, that literally, you know, as as has been well pointed out, it's like all this red pill stuff, have people not realised that, particularly the the rabid red pill type brigade, it's like, have they not... Realized that the whole idea was created by two trans women. <laughs> it's just wild. It is just, I don't know what's going on here anymore. I don't know what he meant by that. I don't know what Ivanka thought she was responding to. I do know that I think, you know, Tesla board members and Tesla share owners are a bit like, why does this keep happening and what is going on? Yeah. And look, I'm going to say uh, just as one more little aside, because you, you brought up Quibi, <laughs> and uh, uh, last week Jeffrey Katzenberg, uh, basically the you know, CEO, one of the big investors in the whole thing, um, yeah, basically blamed coronavirus for why it has done so badly. And you're like literally the, the moment when every entertainment service on the planet has had some of its biggest numbers ever uh, and we're dealing with a situation where instead um, – yeah, they seem to have only gotten about one point something million downloads um, after and had a budget apparently in the order of like almost half a billion dollars for marketing uh, in the year ahead. And they're like, well, maybe we won't spend quite that much now. Um, but yeah, the idea of blaming coronavirus for people not wanting to use your entertainment app is really... Look, let me throw it out there, and God help me, I've become a Quibi defender, even though I've never actually got around to watching a full show on there, and they're only eight (laughs) minutes long. Um, When your entertainment uh, delivery platform is really around that snackable content, snackable content that's incredibly easy uh, to consume while traveling, and nobody's traveling, and nobody wants snackable content, they want the full buffet, maybe he's got a point. Maybe this is the kind of thing that when people are back on on subways or uh, trains, buses, maybe this is when it will shine. See, maybe, but I I feel like the thing that really struck me was that feeling that 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 kind of commuting time is a time when I feel like people have, we kind of all already have random crap we like doing on our phones 
And we don't necessarily need well-produced content to fill in those gaps when, because it still means you're kind of, you know that you're trying to commit six minutes, eight minutes, standing in a line, wherever it might be, you're kind of going, I'm committing this many minutes to doing this specific thing and I, I want to finish it versus just that mindless scrolling that people love to do on social media, which you know you can stop at any second if the thing happens, you know, the thing you're waiting for or your train stop comes or something else means that interrupt moment hits you. But, but if I if I stop my mindless scrolling, maybe my uh, completely overwhelming sense of a bleak future will end, and what would I do then? <laughs> but hey, you know, there's bleak futures available on Quibi. All you have to do is find the right show. I, I think anyway. Quibi's time will shine, and um, I do say that as someone who will not be actually entering into a paid subscription. I just want to make that absolutely clear. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Uh, tell me something funny that you've seen recently that's actually made you happy on the internet. Yeah. All right. I'll, I'll do more than tell you, Nick. Oh, what do you got for me? A little snippet. I wish I'll be your fantasy. I'll be your rope. I'll be your love. Be everything that you need. I love you more with every breath. Truly, madly, deeply do. I will be strong. I will be faithful. Savage Garden, sung by a bunch of hooligans. <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> now, just remind me, that is actually a TikTok, isn't it? So this is, I started double-checking it. And it gets even more awesomely weird okay. internet remix culture than just a TikTok meme. So this guy, what's his name? Brandon Foster created this TikTok meme and it has like just nice little, uh, you know, graphics on it talking about the fact that when the lads all get back down together, when the lockdown is over and it's, you know, it's like each bloke kind of walking into the pub and starting singing the song and the chorus kind of builds. And it's really that idea of we're all just kind of loving the fact that we're back together. And I love that it's like this you know, savage garden, truly, madly, deeply, just brilliant. Um, and then, of course, it's gone viral on Twitter off the back of it being on TikTok. Because the one thing that TikTok is really good at is actually letting you share videos off it onto other services. I think it's ended up on like James Corden and stuff since. Oh, because, really? Yeah, because I, I kind of found, again, the person who shared it the biggest on Twitter isn't the guy who created it, but I found him further down in the thread kind of going, hey, by the way, I'm the guy that made it. <laughs> <laughs> and so then I noticed on his channel that he then linked to when James Corden talked about it on one of his shows. Um, the original song is 10 years old. It was an actual, like, hard man choir thing that was part of a Puma Valentine's Day promotion. No. <laughs> yep. Um, and it's just... But the original video is amazing because it really is this, like, super soccer hooligan-looking kind of chorus of, of blokes in a pub singing this with, like, really stern faces kind of shouting it at the camera. Totally brilliant. Um, but it really has kind of just reminded me that I feel like 
you know, it, right, there's so much about this time when you go, oh, what kinds of things kind of get us through? Then I'm like, man, memes are kind of awesome. And like seeing things like this where it's, it is a guy having some fun in his house. He's like being all these different characters in the pub. And, you know, including I love it, you know, and he's like sitting on the, sitting on the side as like the old man kind of takes off his glasses and rubs his eyes because it's just all so beautiful. <laughs> um, and I just love that stuff like this bubbles to the surface in this kind of moment where just some dude having some fun and it goes completely ballistic. And I just can't get this cool little meme out of my head because I do just keep going, oh, wouldn't it be great if enough people have seen this that when you do go down the pub on that first Friday night when everyone's, and someone starts singing it and everyone joins in, it really would be actually amazing. <laughs> I I am delighted by how much delight you have got from this thing, which I, I do remember actually seeing and then just doing that wry truckle, chuckle and going, yes, very clever, very clever. <laughs> I have, For look, some reason, I can't get it out of my head. <laughs> I think it's great. Look, I had no idea. And you're right, it, it, it is that highlight of that remix culture. And TikTok has been incredibly interesting for that, especially around lockdown memes. Yeah, man. There have been, like, so many um, so many things around this space. And then I've been kind of reading more about it because I've been trying to sort of get on top of – like, I just, I feel like it's a space that is worth talking about more because, of course, memes have been around for so long. I think even the word meme is now kind of getting applied to just any Anything. funny thing. And this is partly then when it starts to sort of head into that awkward space of it's because anyone who's trying to be funny is trying, it. like, the suggestion is almost, well, anyone trying to be funny on the internet is trying to go viral and they're trying to get their clever quip to become a meme because in the end it's like this whole thing is now actually about trying to chase earning some money by being clever on the internet. And that's the bit where I'm like, oh, man, can we let kind of the internet have its beautiful, funny, clever things? And I think this one is an example of a guy kind of just making a fun thing and, you know, look, I, you know, I hope at some point he finds a way to kind of convert it as at least a bit of something, but it's more when that thing then becomes the driving force is to, is to get enough followers so that you can then try to start charging money for being clever on the internet. Oh, look, I, I love seeing this sort of stuff. I, I can only imagine that you've been an equally big fan of Crackboy Mental and the Mr. Dance For Me, Mr. Tato Man. <laughs> Which again is that one of those classic things of is this bad? Is this good? No one cares anymore. They're just really enjoying it. And look, you know, I know we misuse the word meme, but to me that's part of the joy. It's not what Richard Dawkins meant when he coined yes. it. And anything that annoys Richard Dawkins <laughs> is is good news for me. Uh, I'm a member of a couple of different meme groups on Facebook, which is really where memes go to die. Um, Zoom memes for self-quarantines might be my absolute favourite, not because of the quality of the memes, but just the the name of it, just the absolute name of it. Yeah. And look, there's a great article by uh, Taylor Lorenz, who is just, I think, probably, you know, the absolute queen of covering this whole internet culture space right now. And yeah, she actually has written an inter interesting article that also looks at the whole issue where TikTok is kind of now being invaded by the people who are trying to build these kinds of networks in a way that they almost like used to just live on Instagram. And it's, and particularly what she's referencing is, is the stuff where anything that is doing well on TikTok 
you now start to see a flood of comments saying like follow for follow and all those kinds of just people trying to build things mm. rather than people engaging with the actual content. And it's, it's like so many things. You're like, here's this beautiful blossoming space of fun stuff. And yes, of course, TikTok has all sorts of issues with data and, you know, and all the kinds of issues of how it's running itself and all that jazz. But people are just have mostly been there having a great time watching people sharing cool and funny things. And that there's a whole dance culture thing on there as well. And that's even having its own issues of, you know, do the people who create the dances get appropriate attribution, um, you know, instead of someone more famous kind of getting all the, the glory. Ah. But man, oh man, it's like I just, I, I feel like I, I wish the internet could let old school internet have fun and do clever things last more than five minutes before each time before someone gets... kind of leaps in on it to try to work out how it can be commercialized and commodified. And monetized. Yeah, no, it is absolutely exhausting. And I think the other important thing here is that when we talk about mimetic art, this has taken on its own life in ways that I struggle to comprehend. And I really appreciate you know, how mystifying it is and the terminology around it, you know, when something's been deep fried and things like that. And the one I keep coming back to, it's years old now, but it was almost an epiphany for me about just how little I understood and, and, and what humour was like now. You would have seen it. It's the penguin from Madagascar saluting as he fades off into Thanos finger snap dust and it's captioned with Mrs. Obama, it's been an honour. Now, I love that. I just think of it all the time. It's my, you know, <laughs> your equivalent. Because it it has gone so far beyond sense, it has created its own sense of sense. And I don't know where to go with it. I just know that it is in many ways to me high art. Yeah, that's such a good point that the absurdist stuff is almost like that's where it, there is really almost still that space of, you know, stuff that just shoots so far past anything that is commodifiable. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> that you almost kind of go, bravo. <laughs> like, I love that this is so nuts. And therefore, it just, yeah, strikes the perfect chord for, like, whatever weird little niche of people fall in love with that thing rather than it just being this, like, perfect mainstream version of a meme. Yeah. Now, I'm about to float you a meme segue here because one of the great ones to me is um, at this stage, you know, I know nothing about blah and at this stage I'm too afraid to ask. <laughs> I still have not really worked out what a Joe Rogan is or why I keep hearing <laughs> his name all the time, but I know that he's pissed people off again somehow. Uh, yes. So, well, yeah, I mean, look, this is really interesting. It certainly has annoyed me today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's plenty of people who, um, have, but I, I feel like it does kind of fit into this space because it's that same thing going. Here is somebody who, you know, a weird bit part actor, then an announcer for UFC, um, and then a like massive, wildly successful podcast host, Joe Rogan, with the Joe Rogan experience. Uh, today's been announced that he's just done a massive deal with Spotify. Um, numbers suggest it's worth 190, uh, oh, sorry, worth over $100 million potentially. It's what? like rumored numbers. Wow. Um, he does downloads in the order of like 190 million downloads a month. 
So, like, you know, so about twice what, what we get here on Byteside. Oh, easily. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, roughly, roughly. But he's got um, the backing, so, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but um, he, yeah, has done a deal with Spotify where he's going to move to the Spotify platform um, and for a few months it will remain on both Spotify and on all the podcast apps and YouTube but then it will go exclusive. And this is the first time Spotify has done this kind of a deal where they have bought Gimlet Media, who makes some of my favorite podcasts. They have uh, bought The Ringer, which is an awesome sports network of podcasts, but they've left those openly available on the web. Mm. They've done some, like, the odd exclusive episode, which, again, you sort of think, okay, yeah, fair enough. You know, that's their way to kind of promote people to use their app. Um, but with Joe Rogan, this is the first time they've gone, no, nah, this is all exclusive. If you want that show that you've loved for a long time, you have to use the Spotify app to get it. And my issue is that, I mean, A, does it still get called a podcast if it's only available on one app? My answer to that huh. is hell no. Um, but B, like what it does to that whole kind of question of, Spotify wanting to turn the idea of, you know, of internet audio content on the internet, which has generally been known as podcasts, which has been openly distributed through RSS feed type technology, um, turning that into this kind of thing that becomes exclusive to, to different platforms and suddenly users being asked to, you know, install certain apps to get to certain pieces of content. And it kind of, I don't know, I feel like it really breaks what has been great about the idea of podcasts as an open system. Um, but on the other side, with the video side of his content, it might be good for trying to break the YouTube stranglehold because he has been like top 10 on YouTube for a long time. And now that's going to disappear and be watchable through Spotify, which is something Spotify has dabbled in but never really pushed. I think this is really intriguing because on a user level, we've also got that upcoming fragmentation and if you're in australia at the moment trying to watch you know streaming video content you know as well as i do that fragmentation is a killer it is so confusing to be able to follow along all the shows you want to watch without you know having to subscribe to multiple services that's a payment issue but also just changing between those apps especially on your tv can be an absolute pain in the bum and and you've got to wonder when people are used to having this one platform of their choice where all of their great podcasts that they want to listen to are aggregated to is having to change up are they going to follow along yeah and look this is where i kind of wonder i think and this is like the really interesting will be will i mean he does have a really loyal Basic listeners. Yep. And it's that question of will a lot of them follow? And I think Spotify is going to really look at this carefully of, you know, will we force enough of those people to just not quit listening to Joe Rogan um, and come to Spotify specifically for that? You know, does that mean we can then repeat this with whether it is the networks they already own or whether it is by buying other shows? what is their path to sort of say, how do we kind of start trying to monopolize the, you know, the big content that people care about? And in the long run, that's where it gets really dangerous. And we start to sort of have that issue of, you know, Google in search, Facebook in social media, that idea that then they kind of start to to change what it means 
to distribute audio content in a more open way because it's like, well, actually, you can't distribute to Spotify without signing a specific agreement with Spotify. Our show is on Spotify. People could be listening to it on Spotify right now. But that's fine because, you know, we've kind of just said, you know, we agree to their terms and then they still use the same RSS kind of back-end system that, that every other podcast uses. It's just more than if they get to that stranglehold, they can impose more terms, they can maybe even say, well, you can't have your own advertising deal. You have to do the advertising that we say you can or can't do because it's our platform now and it's not an open platform. Look, we have seen in the past people doing exclusives with streaming services and usually it is music I want to talk about here. That's not gone well for them in the past. There's been a lot of anger around that. I mean, you can go right back over Taylor Swift's history of streaming services, for example, and see a few missteps there that have really upset fans at times. I just wonder, is this more akin to, you know, as I see in the news occasionally, streamers saying that they're changing platforms? Yeah, and look, that is a great example because I actually just saw some stats that are kind of freaky in that, what, like the two biggest streamers from Twitch, uh, Shroud and Ninja, both went to Mixer last year. Um, Apparently, the kind of annual stats for all the different streaming services for gaming... um, some of them sort of came out recently and yeah, there's been huge growth for, um, for Twitch in particular, but you know, there's a couple of other services, uh, like, like probably just YouTube itself with, in terms of game streaming, probably even Facebook itself for streaming that those streaming numbers have like doubled year over year for most services. Mixer, which is the service that Shroud and Ninja went to Mm. owned by Microsoft. uh, Apparently it's growth year over year is still single digits. It's really been that idea that in that category, people are happy to go. I just want to watch something cool, but as much as they love those streamers, they have not bothered making the jump to Mixer. You know, some have, but not many. And when you think that that's percentage growth on what was already a really low base, you know, like Mixer was the tiniest thing out there. So to get really small percentage growth is kind of scary. And, of course, it doesn't actually hurt Trout or Ninja. In the long run, like let's say they had a one-year deal, you know, maybe they then just jump back to Twitch after a year, they bank an awful lot of money, and then they just go and hang out with their friends again. Um, I think it's the same for Joe Rogan. I don't, you know, I don't begrudge Joe Rogan at all. And, you know, maybe in the long run, it's like, well, that was an interesting experiment. And now I'll go back to where everybody is because they didn't come for the ride. <laughs> um, and no doubt if somebody said to me, here's lots of money, come and be exclusive to our platform, I'd be like, yeah, I'll take the money. Thanks. <laughs> um, you know, individual deals, you kind of never begrudge the creator. It's more in the long run. This idea that we have so much evidence that aggregation eventually hurts everybody but the aggregator. <laughs> um, and I think we need to be very careful about just kind of casually letting it happen all over again. Look, this weirdly leads me into some things I wanted to talk about, which is a bit more kind of generalistic about, I guess, the technology and the apps that we have been miring ourselves in during lockdown Now that we're seeing a bit of light at the end of the tunnel, we're seeing a lot of the restrictions roll back right across the states. I'm curious about the things that we are going to leave behind. Now, Mm. I've been surprised by the things I didn't get into. Might be one way of starting that. 
I really thought I was going to be neck deep in gaming for pretty much the whole lockdown. And I say that as someone who still gets up and goes to work. I still have a job that I travel to. But, you know, obviously there's less things I do in my downtime. I thought, well, this is gaming's time to shine. I'm going to go back to all those games I got fatigued by and never got to finish. And I'm going to do this. (laughs) I'm going to do that. I can't get into it. I I find myself I'll, I'll have a couple of days of being, oh, this is heaps of fun and then just my interest wanes off. And I'm actually wondering if after lockdown I'll be back into gaming more because it becomes genuine downtime as opposed to something I'm doing to fill time. But I know from reading your Twitter today, you're thinking of upgrading TV. And it sounds to me like the big home screen has been something that you've turned to quite a lot as a family when lockdown's been around. Yeah, yeah, it has. I think in in that sort of family mode, we've been definitely trying to make more conscious effort to to kind of share stuff and you know sort of hang out in a more active way. I mean, it it almost gels with what we as a family have been doing with the whole digital Sabbath idea, right? You know, where we've mm. been sort of actively trying to have a day where we just switch up all the tech. It's almost, I think, in some ways. And look, that has not succeeded very well through some of this whole lockdown period it almost feels like because everybody's been a bit trapped it's like you know what like the digital space has been part of that escape opportunity you know especially for the kids to hang out with their friends so we've definitely been doing that sort of downtime uh away from tech a little less often as we would otherwise we probably do it you know once every third week something like that at the moment but we still you know make sure it's part of the the cycle uh overall but We've definitely been finding that wanting to kind of get into the TV stuff um, has been more and more of a thing. And, you know, it's meant as well, there's some sort of you know, bits of re- review kit for me as well. I've been turning up now and then that means I'm like, oh, God damn it, I actually need something that can do HDMI 2.1 <laughs> so I can test out whether or not this cool new thing actually does the cool new things it's meant to do. Um, so that's kind of triggered a lot of thought about how to, you know, set things up properly. But for me, it's. It, I think you're really onto something with that idea that it, the mental energy that has been associated with this time hasn't been what a lot of us had hoped it would be. You know, like we kind of hoped we would be able to, to choose to kind of turn it into productive downtime in yep. a sense. You know, that active gaming thing, whereas... In a lot of ways, it's felt like we've needed more time to just passively lie down and let things happen to us rather than actively be gaming. Um, at least that's been certainly the experience here. And I've even just started, you know, doing a bit of a thing where I'm like, I want to assign, particularly my son, I want to assign him some games to play because I can see he's just kind of playing some really lazy games that are just rubbish <laughs> games that are total time waster games. And I'm like, no, if you're going to play games, play something good. But I can also understand that part of it is almost wanting something just to fidget with rather than something 
that we need to kind of actively immerse ourselves in. You are talking to someone who spent a week on bejeweled classic mode. Oh. So don't <laughs> even start with me on that one. Look, just a couple of things to pick apart there. I love the fact that we live in a, a time period with so much digital screen fragmentation within the home that actually a family getting together to watch TV on the same screen is almost family time again. That is just wild yes. in a weird way. Um, but I think for me... Having gaming there to fill time has stripped a lot of the joy out of gaming. And I am not surprised that games like Animal Crossing and Stardew Valley are still proving popular because to me, and I'm going to get in trouble here, I'm really sorry, there's not a lot of entertainment there. They are methodical work games. You know, you've got to check your turnip stonks. You've got to terraform. Or in Stardew, you've got to milk the cow and make sure the cheese is being done. And is it being sold in market properly? And what's happening here? I really disliked Stardew Valley because at some point into it, I was like, I've been tricked into having a job. Like, I'm just here running a farm. This is a job. But I get why right now, games with responsibilities would be fascinating. And I, I, I can see that. And maybe that's why when I try and go to these big open world games that I think I'm going to just love, like I'm just going to go here and I'll do this and I'll do that, I'm not because I'm already feeling a bit of lack of direction. I don't want that from a game. And I'm, I'm quietly giggling to myself because while I haven't touched Animal Crossing, um, and I don't know if you've seen the stats, that like oh, it has sold oh, wildly oh, oh. more than any Animal Crossing game in history. Um, like it's it's now one of the biggest ever games in uh, you know in Nintendo history. I think in terms of the number of units it's sold, uh, it was like the perfect game for the perfect moment. Uh, is what it seems to, to have been in a lot of ways. But I'm kind of giggling when you're talking about that work type game because. You know, my love of World of Warcraft is well known. Um, and there's sort of a bunch of end game stuff at the moment because the next expansion is coming in a few months time. So there's not many big new things to do. Um, but the one thing that I have kind of decided, okay, I'm going to lock in on this. This is the thing I'm going to do. I basically, anytime I've opened the game in recent weeks, I am just feeding a bee. I am going around a zone and collecting royal jelly to feed a baby bee because the more if i can keep doing that and it is literally like thousands of these little blobs of jelly that i have to collect um then i will earn a really cool bee mount so i can fly around on a cool bee um you know forever more in the rest of the game and it's just that that feeling of going i can chip away at this goal i doesn't i don't have to think about anything i just fly around this zone and anytime I see the little bit of jelly, I can just fly down and I just harvest it and just keep collecting. And I can kind of listen to a podcast while I do that or whatever it might be. But it, it is absolutely that feeling of going, it's menial work that just lets your brain switch off. And um, which is probably quite different to the Animal Crossing stuff because boy, oh boy, have I seen some wild stuff going on with like tracking 
turnip values and people like building the most insane things on their islands. Um, that's a whole different kind of thing. But for me, it is very much that menial work in a game is part of what's helped me to switch off a little bit. Yeah, look, and I feel you on that. And it kind of rolls us into to the other thing I wanted to talk about at the moment. Because, yeah, Assassin's Creed Valhalla. How many of the Assassin's Creed games have you played? I I played the first three very, very deeply. And I think I dabbled with a couple of other ones later on and then did have a bit of time in Odyssey, but not much. But I love the series. Like, I love yeah. it. Oh, look, I've touched into most of them, and it's really interesting because they've come out, Ubisoft, and said that AC Valhalla is actually going to be bigger than Odyssey. Now, Origins I really enjoyed, and Odyssey I really enjoyed, but I never got through them. At some point, and this happens to me in a lot of games, I end up with, uh, I call it either map fatigue or side quest fatigue, that when yeah. a game is just so big that at some point you're like, uh, I don't think I've got time for this anymore. And I'm, I was looking forward to a tighter game. And I, I know games love to boast about this. You know, the map is actually seven times bigger than any map we've ever done. But I get a shudder from that now. I actually think that's actually quite, for me, in the way I like to game, bad. And I, I'm wondering if on that AAA level, we've lost that tighter narrative experience for a single-player game. Yeah, it's funny. I actually, I almost wrote this down into the show notes as well as a thing because I totally agree. When I saw them kind of come out and boast that <laughs> the next AC was going to be bigger than Odyssey, it was exactly that feeling of going, ah, oh, like, but ours goes up to 11. And it's like, yeah, but why, um, but why? why is that better why? than 10? Yeah. <laughs> it goes up to 11. <laughs> yeah. oh. It's just that sense of, Tell me qualitatively what's going to be better about it or bigger about it. Don't, don't just say that scale equals like bigness equals better. Um, it's definitely one of those things where, you know, it, it is really important that I think we kind of push back against this a little bit because right, like Grand Theft Auto was sort of that sequence of games that really sort of kept kind of showing how you know, the next one was bigger than the last one. But in so many ways, it is, you know, that kind of grandfather of that style of open world. You're on a quest, but, you know, you're just kind of living in this universe for for whatever reasons, you know, you feel like doing. And they've converted that over time into the fact that, you know, like the five, you know, came out so long ago, but mm. there is this whole new life for that game as kind of a multiplayer, you know, persistent server environment, you know, and there's all sorts of cool stuff in the, that has been going on in that with like role-playing and all sorts of ways that has, it's been able to keep evolving because they really had a clear idea of what does it mean for this game to be open in this kind of way. Whereas I think, yeah, Assassin's Creed is sort of exploring it in that let's make it bigger, but it's still really a solo game. And I think you're, you're completely right that when I think of what I want from a single-player game, I, I never want to be feeling like I don't know what I'm meant to do next. And sometimes in this style of game, that kind of breadcrumb system just falls apart where you suddenly go, I don't know 
how I get from here to the next <laughs> thing or or I know I'm not skilled enough yet. Do I just have to now run around and kill some stuff or like how do I now find out how to get good enough? And it's like, well, that's part of the joy of the game. And it's like, no, make give me something that at least makes me know how the process kind of flows forward in this story. Yeah, please do. Because otherwise I just, I lose it. I lose track and I can't do it. And look, some of it's my own fault. I do definitely throw myself into side quests like they're going out of style and then suddenly realize I've completely forgotten the actual main quest I'm on. Uh, That was a, thank you, The Witcher 3. That was very much that. I'm like, oh, where am I? meant to be who's this guy that's talking to me oh okay um but you know i i I will still enjoy valhalla i'm looking forward to it um i just i wonder if it's going to be one of those things that a bit like odyssey i wait till it's 50 percent off after you know several months after it's out before i grab it because i know i'm not going to sink myself into it the way it might if it was a smaller game yeah look and that's a good point and i i will also just a hat tip to Ubisoft for the fact that the Valhalla um, preview stream where they were sort of teasing the the cover art, it was actually an Australian artist known as Boss Logic who um, did the artwork for it. And it was such a great concept to kind of foreground the idea of letting someone going through the process over eight hours of creating this beautiful piece of art um, you made, they made that the stream to kind of reveal the art by just streaming the guy having created the artwork. Um, and, it, of course, that means the details are slowly being revealed as you sort of realize get hints wow. for what kind of setting it is. Uh, there's even one point where, like, the castle on the hill, because I watched it for a little while, there was a castle up on a hill, and so there's sort of one tone going on. And then the castle, he starts kind of destroying the castle in the art and kind of just clipping bits out. And and it's like, oh, okay, actually, there's now an old ruined castle on the hill, not a shiny new castle on the hill. Um, It was such a good thing. Just the idea of foregrounding that kind of creativity as part of revealing what the setting and the name of the game was going to be was really, really cool stuff. So I just adore that side of what they've done with that concept so far. Look, thumbs up, Ubi. You've never let me down. Well, if you have, I've forgiven you and I haven't remembered it. So I am looking <laughs> forward to this. James, we should wrap up. What's happening on some of your other podcasts this week? Uh, let's see. Um, we have had, um, actually, I've been sitting on an interview for a long time and it's going to run this week. So there was an interview I did that, uh, is in a holding pattern at the Australian Financial Review. Um, a great interview with the, uh, the CEO of one of Australia's biggest influencer kind of groups, mm. um, click management. Um, Grace Watkins is her name, and it is such a good chat, and they have really come into their own through this whole um, coronavirus kind of period as well. But this chat was from back in January, just talking about, you know, how um, how they sort of built what they built, how sort of, you know, the difficulties of being based here in Australia but being one of the kind of the world's biggest networks of YouTubers and, you know, Twitch streamers. Um, she's, you know... Grace's background. So Grace is the sister of one of the main streamers in that group, but she is, she basically left PwC to kind of go and work with them. So it was that, that thing of she brought the accounting chops to, you know, turn them into a real business. Um, and 
just a fascinating brain. They also now I've seen are doing their own brilliant podcast, which is really kind of tearing apart, you know, how the business of all that kind of stuff works. Um, but yes, I'm getting that up this week and that should be a really good chat. So that's actually on high resolution where there's a bunch of game, games industry type conversations. And last week I had Ross Simons, who is the CEO of, um, of Big Ant studios um make heaps of sports games and um he has been around the australian games industry for like 40 years had some brilliant insights on all sorts of stuff he actually explained because i asked what happened to all the tennis games i used to love Mm. tennis games from you know the early noughties there was top spin and 2k and um he basically said that yeah the um the atp and all the tennis pros um, he said they basically called a bluff that wasn't a bluff, which was that they were like, we want more money for our likeness rights. And the game makers were like, there's just not that kind of money in tennis games. And they were like, well, well that's our, yeah, that's it. Take it or leave it. And so they were like, well, we literally can't afford to make these games anymore. <laughs> and that was oh, that. my Lord. Um, but it's a really, really interesting chat. So that one's live now. And then, yeah, the Grace Watkins chat will be going up uh, tomorrow. So it'll probably be up around the same time you see this in your feeds. Fantastic. And, of course, we'll do this in another week's time. If you are trying to hunt me down, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Nick. That's D-R underscore N-I-C. Or you can find me on Facebook. It's Nick.Healy. Seamus, what about you? I'm at Seamus, S-E-A-M-U-S. At Byteside, of course, and at the Byteside on Instagram, Byteside on Facebook, and Byteside on LinkedIn. I'm actually Ooh. having really good fun being a little more kind of, um, you know, LinkedIn. Uh, businessy, you know, looking more at the industry side of things over on LinkedIn, being that industry kind of space. But people, you know, it's people are engaging with it. Very engaging, very innovative content over there on the LinkedIn. Um, I don't know why I had to go into that voice. <laughs> you can email us as well, ask at biteside.com. Um, but until next time, I guess we will see you then.